This, uh, th- it'll be interesting to see how this conversation goes because my questions don't always sound like questions, so you, you can dance around that for a while. P.J. O'Rourke, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you. Pleased to be here. It looks like you are in your bunker in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, maybe that was a really smart decision that you made a long time ago based on on our current COVID situation. You're, you're, you're probably safe and no one knows where you are, I suspect. Uh, let, let us hope so. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, one of the rare moments of foresight I've ever had. Uh, albeit uh, 20 years too early. Yeah, well, you you saw it coming. I saw it coming, right. Yeah, the I, ship I, was yeah. going to hit the fan. Absolutely, absolutely. Of course, my poor, my poor wife and children have had to live up here in the middle of nowhere for these 20 years while we waited for disaster to happen. But um, Your new book um, just released, A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. Uh, this is your 20th book, is that correct? I believe that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of writing. It is. It is, and I, I I'd be lying if I weren't say, if I didn't say I weren't a little tired of doing it. But you can't stop. You can't help yourself. I don't know how to do anything else. Yeah. I have a wood shop downstairs, and like I, the public is not clamoring for the products thereof. So I uh, uh, doing some research for this conversation. I discovered a um, book review called that I wrote in Reason Magazine in October 1991 of of one of your perhaps most famous book, Parliament of Horrors, and I called it Civics from Hell. And I was reminded of this beautiful metaphor for government that that you wrote about at the time, and you were talking about uh, one of your friends was artificially seminating a cow. You may recall this story. And uh, I'm, I'm going to read that because I feel like that might be a good way to get this started. Getting, sure, getting a cow. A proud piece of reporting. Yes. Yeah, perhaps some of your most poetic writing. Getting a cow in the family way is not accomplished with a bull and some very white tapes in a heart-shaped stall. It is instead a rather unpleasant procedure, particularly if you happen to be the cow. Oh, I cut off the rest of the quote. Oh, I, I just ruined the whole thing. Um, and you go on to say, luckily I wasn't on the end, business end of the cow, but the look in that cow's face told me everything that I needed to know about government. And it's, it strikes me as, a, as the perfect metaphor for government that is constantly and artificially violating us and our rights. And I've always thought about that whenever I study a new law or think about anything that government has done. And my other favorite quote, which sometimes I give you attribution for from that same book, giving money and power to government is like giving whiskey and car keys to a teenager. It never works out. <laughs> I've got one. Uh, a teenager, that is. Uh, uh, um, at the moment, he's not allowed to have it. It took him about 15 minutes after getting his driver's license to hit a tree. So he's, he's certainly not going to get any whiskey, and he's not going to get the car keys for a while. Um, backing up, as it were, for a moment to um, the cow, 
Uh, we may have urban. Uh, we, may, we may have an urban constituency out there that doesn't know how cow artificial insemination is done. And what it requires is for the cow inseminator to take a tube of bull semen um, and basically um, put it up in a very private place of the cows, uh, up to about his elbow. And then um, what the, the, the cattle breeder does is um, uh, uh, squirt dish soap on his other arm and put it into an even more personal and private place of the cows all the way up to his elbow so that he can manipulate the uterus through the intestine wall and make sure that the semen is, uh, and like I say, I was not down at the business end of all this. I was upholding the cow's head, but uh, as you mentioned, I will never forget the look on that cow's face. And this, and this was actually written long before Obamacare became the law of the land. Long before Obamacare, yes. In fact, it was written back when we actually had dairy farms around here in, in uh, the middle of the woods in New Hampshire, and they're gone too. So you've, you've made a career out of anticipating disaster many years before it happens. I told those cows to get out of here. <laughs> um, so, so your new book is, is kind of interesting, and I, I think it's fascinating. You know, I, I would call you a libertarianish conservative or a conservative libertarian. I don't know what your preferred label is. Maybe you don't like any labels anymore. And you wrote a book about Adam Smith and the wealth of nations, so you, you have some proclivities that that would be called classical liberal. Right. You're declaring yourself with this new book in the middle. And and it's interesting that that I've I've felt that way um, even even before Trump got elected, but I saw both parties taking taking a, a, a right turn to nationalism and a left turn to socialism and and the the only place, if you're accepting that left-right spectrum, which I don't always accept anyway, like the only safe place for the rest of us to be is somewhere in the middle saying, why, why can't we all just get along? And you, you I'm going to read a quote from, from the new book. Uh, I, just, I just love this. We need a political system that isn't so darn sure of itself. It's time for the rise of the extreme moderate, Power to the far middle. Let's bring the wishy and the washy back together, along with the namby and the pamby and the milk and the toast. The extreme moderate's non-negotiable demand? Negotiation. We won't compromise until we see some compromising. We want political action or inaction. It depends. So what do you mean by that? Well... What I mean is that we, you know, as as a as uh, you know, to what extent is the government responsible for this, that, and the other thing? How much should the government spend? Where should the wherewithal for that spending come from? Uh, it's it's an endless fight. Democracy is an endless fight, not a fist fight. We hope, but just you know, a, 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 a the debate is forever, and so it should be. Uh, but when you're distracted by uh, sort of in the White House and crazy people over in the Democratic Party, um, you can't have that debate. Uh, You're drowned out by the screaming from each side. Uh, I haven't changed my political opinions to become middle of the road. 
I'm, I'm still the libertarian conservative that I always was. And I have plenty of friends who are still the, you know, the bleeding heart liberals that they always were. Um, I just want a little quiet space for us to go back to being mad at each other in a normal sort of way. So it's it's more um, the tone of our arguments, although, you know, the history of the United States is famously involved um, shootings and fistfights on the on the House of Representatives floor. But it does seem like like the tone is uh, is is more hostile and more angry and and you, you, you go into that throughout the book. So it's not, it's more about um, maybe listening to each other and, and maybe at least trying to understand what your political enemies are trying to say. Absolutely. You know, I mean, and you should always be in a position, one should always be in a position of uh, being willing to have one's mind changed uh, about things. I, for instance, uh, was not enthusiastic about gay marriage, mainly because I, I really felt that government had no role in marriage, that this was a religious or a personal, um, indeed a romantic, um, a very private thing. And uh, that didn't mean that I, I didn't think that, that same-sex couples should have the same sort of contractual rights, you know, the same rights for uh, that are given to um, uh, heterosexual couples for inheritance and, and medical supervision and decision making and, and, and indeed parenting. Uh, so I was told, I, I was thinking of it in terms of civil contract, and I, I, I really didn't see the point of gay marriage until I talked to gay friends. And gay friends made me understand that what was important to them was not, of course, the civil contract aspect of it was important. But what was really important to them, they be part of the larger society, that they be included in the larger society, that they be allowed to have the same sort of ceremonies and customs uh, that the larger society grants to, to, to other people. And I thought, well, that's actually an admirable thing. I, 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 I believe America wouldn't exist if we weren't inclusive. Uh, um, I'm all for inclusion. And so I changed my mind. It doesn't seem like um, we even have what, what you're calling an argument anymore. We, all, a lot of the screaming back and forth is, is just about the inherent deficiencies of the other tribe and, and we're defined now, if we're on the right, we're really defined by what we hate on the left. And if we're on the left, we just, we just have Trump derangement syndrome and we, we, we go bananas every time he tweets. And, and missing in all of that is a conversation about, well, what do we do about healthcare? What do we do about the national debt? What do we do about, you know, the, the policy arguments that we at least used to, to talk about, even if we couldn't agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and for instance, in this, let's you know, we'll, we'll call it an argument because that was to it technically what it was. This argument about gay marriage that I used as an example, there was, of course, no actual arguing. I was having dinner with friends. We were talking. Um, uh, nobody got heated uh, about this. Uh, and, uh, no voices were raised. Uh, I was saying, gee, you know, why doesn't a civil ceremony like suit, suit the purpose? Um, uh, why, why this drive to, to, 
take it further. And they said, well, for these reasons, you know, this is how we feel. And it has to do with our families and, and getting our families to socially accept, you know, who we are and so on and so forth. And so, um, yeah, I mean, most of the best arguments don't really require um, the minute somebody gets loud, they're wrong. Um, uh, not, not every time, but, you know, Churchill got kind of loud about the Nazis, but, you know, so we, we can make exceptions here. Um, but, 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 but fundamentally is it, discussion is required and, um, um, and, it, and it's not happening. It's not happening because there are suddenly so many more crazy people in America. It's more about, the noise to signal ratio in our media. Um, the people who have a signal, something to actually say, are being drowned out by the screeching and uh, uh, the static and uh, being broadcast so loudly. You know, you have a whole chapter about, about social media, and I've, I've admitted this before, but I'll admit it to you that um, there was a time not too long ago when I was kind of a romantic about Facebook and Twitter and and YouTube as the means of, of democratizing knowledge and, and liberating people from, from the experts in Washington, D.C., whether they be pretend intellectuals or politicians that they said they knew anything. I thought, oh, this is great because now we can figure out stuff for ourselves. But, but what's happened, and you know, part of this is the structure of the, the social media constructs we use, like Facebook. You know, what's happened is we've all chosen a team and we only consume things that that um, reaffirm to us what bad people those other guys are, and it's it's become sort of a toxic uh, dumpster fire. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I too shared a certain optimism about it. I mean, it's a fantastic research tool. I sometimes wonder when I'm writing about stuff um, how the heck I got along without this. You know, I mean, I. Uh, obviously spent a lot of time at the public library, but I'm way out in the sticks and uh, our public library is a, a marvelous institution, but the Library of Congress, it ain't. Uh, and when I was in Washington, I spent a lot of time at the Georgetown Library, particularly. You can buy a membership at the Georgetown Library and it's uh, it's very complete and it's easier to use and better organized than the, um, uh, 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 than the Library of Congress is. But so I, at first I was, you know, just smitten with this. And then also I think there is something dating back to the 60s where the whole Marshall McLuhan idea of a global village. Well, it's interesting. We were listening to Marshall McLuhan, but we weren't reading him. And if we had read him a little more carefully, he was spending a lot of his time warning about the dangers of the global village. It was basically, well, wait, wait a minute. You know, Dr. McLuhan, you, you said there was going to be a global village. And McLuhan is going, I didn't say the villagers would like each other. <laughs> it, I mean, that it's a sort of a dilemma for a, a classical liberal, though, because those of us um, like you, we, we both believe in, in free trade and we think that cooperation across borders is an essential thing. So we at least have to, to like each other enough that we're willing to to engage in in peaceful trade as opposing as opposed to lobbing bombs at each other, um, shouldn't shouldn't knowing your neighbor better be a good thing? Well, one one would think that that more communication would be a better thing, but it turns out that the way social media is used in the real world, uh, I think, is one of my chapter titles. It's 
whose bright idea every idiot in the world in touch with every other idiot. Yeah, you go on to say, I, I pulled that quote as, as my mom also said, not everything that runs through your mind has to pour out of your mouth. With social media, we've done something worse than create a world where we can, where we can hear what everybody says. We've created a world where we can hear what everybody thinks. And that's, that's pretty ugly in there. It's a little self-imposed thought police, isn't it? Or, or thought anarchy, I guess, in this case. The police didn't come, you know, to tell us to shut up. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like when you, if you as a, an adult in 2020 reread uh, 1984, it contains a different message than it did 30 or 40 years ago because you look at this and you say, we're doing this to ourselves, it's in 1984, yeah. it's being imposed from the outside. I think I say in, in the book that when I read it in high school, I thought this is what the commies want to do. You know, this is a warning against the commies. And then when I read it in college, while temporarily being a college leftist, I was thinking, well, this is what the man is trying to do in America, spelled with three Ks. Uh, <laughs> but then when I read it not long ago, I realized, oh, this is what we're doing to ourselves. Yeah, it it does seem that that the new authoritarianism, and I want to get into to wokeness and all that silliness, but but I'm thinking right now of uh, um, two Republicans that I'm particularly unfond of, Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, have spent um, a lot of time sort of demagoguing Mark Zuckerberg and and our other social media mavens, thinking that the government itself could do a better job of adjudicating this, this out of control conversation. Where are you on that question? Oh my gosh. You know, the only thing that could possibly make the social media platform mess worse would be intervention of government. I mean, you look, you think nah, nothing could make this worse. You go through a bunch of, you know, spend a day on the internet, spend a day looking at people's posts and so on. And you think nothing could make this worse. And then you think, Oh, Oh no, wait a minute. There's the government, the government. Yeah. Committee. That's a frightening idea that they would even think about this. I mean, poor Mark, he was just trying to meet girls at Harvard. You know, <laughs> he, he didn't mean to, you know, he's, he's, you know, had a sort of Pandora's box moment where he unleashed all these woes upon the world. I mean, this is the sort of thing that will self-regulate itself. Um, it, it will self-regulate. Um, but however, it may not self-regulate in our lifetimes. It may take, um, I like to point back to when news, newsprint and, and, and printing presses were first readily available, relatively inexpensive, and all of a sudden every little town had its newspaper. This happened early in the 19th century. Those newspapers were terrible. Um, they were incredibly partisan. They were full of nonsense. They were full of anger, especially in the U.S. leading up to the Civil War. They were, they, you know, they they, 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 they were, were terrifying. And um, we got over that eventually. So I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the, the, the motivation for Republicans wanting to kind of uh, censor Facebook is they, it, and this is part of the new nationalism, um, which perhaps mutated from, from the new authoritarian left. Um, they they want to own the conversation. And they're, they're thinking if our guys regulate speech um, we can we can amplify our voice and, and punish other voices. And there's this phrase um, that you've surely heard of, uh, owning the libs. 
And I, I was thinking about that in the context of reading your book. Um, the, this is really a fight about who gets to control who in the political process. And, and there is no, like, like you say in the book, there's no home for classical liberals who don't want to own anybody and actually are, are um, archaic believers in free speech and, and the ability of, of people to work out their problems. Um, there, there's a, I pulled another quote here that the country is a mess is the one thing that the country agrees on. And even about this, we differ. Half the nation seems to be saying, we don't know what's wrong with America, but we can fix it. While the other half says, there's nothing wrong with America and we can fix that. That sounds like the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign in a nutshell. Yeah, I think that, that's, uh, that's about right. I, I wrote that before I'd actually seen their campaign platforms, but it does sort of come down to that. Um, I think we do need to go back to the question of, well, first place, people do have a home. It's right here. You are not alone. You, know, you are not alone. Uh, we're, we're here with you. Um, but uh, we do need to address the, 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 the question of media bias. And media bias does exist. Um, and I've, I've spent a long time thinking about this, why uh, the, the tendency um, uh, is for, um, first place, the, the media is controlled by intellectuals. Um, uh, they might not describe themselves that way, but they are. They're, you know, and intellectuals like to be able to understand things, and to understand things implies being able to know what to do with them. Um, and what to do about them. And intellectuals have always had trouble leaving people alone. This was Frederick Hayek's great message in The Road to Serfdom, that there could be no worse world, no worse world than a world in which the preeminent expert in each field had unlimited authority over that field. They just don't want to leave people alone. And then the Silicon Valley bias, I think, partly comes from something we were talking about before, which is that they still have, they retain a certain utopian view of this electronic interconnectedness that we've created among people. Um, they're, 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 they're still in that, that, that hopeful bubble. Also, they're very young, and young people tend to um, uh, tend to, you know, the, the old Churchill thing, you know, if you're, if, if you, if you're not on the left uh, as a young person, you have no heart. If you're not on the right as an old person, you have a brain. Uh, there's a little bit of that going on too. So, you know, by the way, the, one of the things we do on this show, um, if you're a loyal viewer of Kibbe on Liberty, every time we quote Hayek, uh, there's there should be a drink in your hand, and you're supposed to <laughs> toast him. So so I'm going to do that. I, I I think it's noon somewhere. <laughs> Good for you. I uh, I have a another thing I have to do this afternoon that unfortunately requires sobriety. So I'm going to have to put that off until um, just a couple hours. But any anyone that. Any, any, anyone that quotes Hayek and in the uh, intellectuals and socialism is, is definitely on, on my team. And, and everybody else is wrong, absolutely. The, uh, you know, one of the things that you say, and this, this gets to that, uh, politicians 
Um, intellectuals has, have always been a problem, but you know, going back to the rise of progressivism, this this pretense that that really smart people could could take the collective wisdom of the rest of us and somehow distill that into a better central plan and and tell us what to do. That's that's always been a thing with intellectuals, um, but it feels like politicians are more sure of themselves today and and you have a proposal for this uh, we should license politicians every other profession has some form of accreditation or certification there are hundreds possibly thousands of politicians in washington none with any formal qualifications for the job yet in the district of columbia more than 125 other occupations require license you might be saying that tongue-in-cheek but these guys aren't really qualified to redesign the world. <laughs> no, they're not. And of course, imagining some sort of course, political course or collegiate course or something they could put, put be put through, um, maybe make them work in a coal mine, except, excuse me, coal is wrong. So we that uh, you have to be some other kind of mine, not to work in a, a wind or sunlight mine, perhaps. Um, yeah, make them go out there and get a job. Um, um, for a long time before they're allowed. But that doesn't always work either. I mean, one of the problems we have with arrogant politicians is that we have allowed our system of government to grow quantitatively um, um, to such a size that they, that they who pull the levers uh, 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 of this giant machinery can't help but feel a certain arrogance um, just because the machine is so very large, never mind that they're sm- pulling a very small lever, uh, very deep within inside that m- machine. Just just being associated with the thing gives them a kind of pride uh, that um, um, it's hard to know what to do about. It. I mean, one one solution, of course, is 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 term limits, but getting but that means getting politicians to vote for career suicide, which is you know kind of an interesting exercise. Yeah. I mean, you uh, you you rewrite. Uh, you had to put a new introduction or, or forward. I forget what you call it at the beginning of this book because you wrote it in 2019, and 2019 was a crazy year where the the shit continuously hit the fan, and it was one thing after another. Um, but then the coronavirus hit, and you you felt like you needed to address it. Um, and you say, then when this book was, was being edited and typeset, someone ate an undercooked bat in a Wuhan wet market. Panic and pandemic ensued. The nation was brought to a stay-at-home standstill, whether reasonably or not to no one is quite certain, and by whose authority no one is quite sure. It's like being 16 again, a friend of mine said. Gas is cheap, and I'm grounded. It strikes me, you know, we... we talked about Hayek and a fatal conceit and politicians who think they know everything, that the top-down, one-size-fits-all um, attempts for governors in particular to become epidemiologists and experiment on the American people struck me as, as just a fundamental uh, new breach of this limitless power that they seem to think they have. 
Where were you on all that? I mean, you're you're a little bit isolated, so you probably had a different experience than me stuck in Washington, D.C. We did and we didn't. I mean, we got three school-aged children who are under all sorts of restrictions at their respective schools, or were when the pandemic broke out. One of them has since virtually graduated from college. But I mean, our we've got a kid in a uh, private high school nearby, and he is under so many restrictions. I mean, they extend to his family. I think I'm supposed to report myself to the boys dean if I associate with a, people outside my immediate family or people that I have been seeing on a daily basis. I'm supposed to re- I haven't quite figured out whether I'm supposed to report myself every time I go to the grocery store or what. But um, to, to come back to a more, more fundamental problem here is that the government has been so intrusive and so controlling. Let us stipulate for a moment, uh, I'm not sure this is true or not, but for let's just stipulate it uh, in the legal sense that all the quarantine and, um, um, uh, and social restrictions measures were necessary. Let's say they were necessary. Trouble is the government has spent so much time for so long telling everybody what to do about everything that if a situation comes along where the government really does need to tell everybody exactly what to do, and again, I'm not saying that was the case, but let us just stipulate for the sake of argument that it was the case. When that, that, that situation comes along, the government finds itself not being listened to, having long ago lost everybody's trust over really minor things. I mean, the absurdity of the fact that at 18, you can get married, uh, you can join the military, you can be convicted for a capital crime, you can be executed, uh, you can sign a contract that's binding, uh, but you can't have, you can die for your country, but you can't have a beer. I mean, yeah. to give just one example close to my children's heart. Um, uh, so, Naturally, when a real emergency comes along, um, nobody is trustful of the people in authority. The tr- people in authority have long ago, by over-exercising that authority, have long ago lost the moral authority that's required. Isn't um, that that appears to be one of the one of the footholds that Trump and Trumpism had? as he sort of laid waste to the to the rest of the Republican field in 2015 and 2016. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. I mean, I while Trump was running, I interviewed a lot of Trump supporters while he was running for the, especially here in New Hampshire, where we really get the primary up close and personal. I had a chance to interview lots of Trump supporters. And I remember talking to one guy who was a wonderful, perfect example of how Trump got elected. So I'm talking to this guy. He's a gas station owner, uh, and he's a very lively, engaging guy. And uh, and he's wearing a Trump button. And and I'm I'm saying, you know, well, you know, asking him about his support for Trump. And, and he says, I think the guy's a little out of whack. I said, Wait a minute. You think the guy's a little out of whack, and you're supporting him for president? I said, Would would you want him in your home? And he goes, nah, no thanks. You know, I said, but you're still supporting him for president. He said, look, 
said, I've got, I got this gas station. I got a body shop. I got a towing operation. It, and it's, it's doing well. I, it, it, it's quite successful. He said, but I got, I got gas tanks that are 25 years old buried in, in, at the gas station. I can't get a federal permit to dig them up. They need to be replaced. I can't get a state permit to dig them up. I, I can't get a local permit to dig them up. I need to put in new gas tanks. I can't get a federal, can't get a state, can't get a local permit to install these. I, I, got, a, uh, I, I got a junkyard out back. It's been a junkyard since 1925. Now there's an endangered newt living in one of the snow tires out, uh, out there. He said, you know, I, I don't really mind Obamacare. He said, like I said, we're doing pretty well. I can afford to give the guys who work for me health benefits. It's just that anytime anybody gets a bright idea down in Washington, a stack of paper the size of the old Boston phone book lands on my desk. Now, I don't have a legal department. I don't have a human resources department. It's just me and my wife running this business, and I'm a mechanic, you know? And so I said to him, so how's sending a lunatic to Washington going to fix this? And he said, it's what they've got coming. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What do you say? That's how he got elected. You know, I... I think about um, so like the you know Trump very much split the the Tea Party activists in half and you know half of them who had been who meant it when they were talking about balancing the budget and cutting the debt and limiting executive power I mean it was pretty clear that Trump was not there going to be their guy but the other half sort of viewed him as a bomb that was going to come to Washington D.C. and 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 blow up the establishment and at least from the the, the wreckage we could. We could maybe put something back together. I don't know if that that latter thing has worked out, but it sounds like the guy that you talked to, um, you know, one of the if I was to sort of honestly parse good Trump and bad Trump, one of the things he apparently has done well is lifted some of the regulatory burden simply by getting the agencies to to stop creating so much paper that ends up on that guy's desk. Yeah, I think, uh, and and I have a feeling, I mean, I'd like to go look this guy up again and see if he's going to vote for Trump again. Uh, I have a feeling that that, 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 that that aspect of Trump probably resonates pretty well. On the other hand, there's the guy's initial misgivings about Trump. He wasn't wrong. Um, the, the thing that, that made me oppose Trump was simply um, his character and his personality. Uh, I thought, this is not the person that you put into the position of being the most powerful person in the world. I just, you know, I, I just wouldn't, this is not the guy that I'd hand that set of car keys to. Yeah. There, I, I got to find this quote because it, it strikes me that uh, um, we're, we're facing this same conundrum. I mean, I, I left the Republican party in 2016 and, and uh, ended up uh, supporting Gary Johnson, and it it felt uh, it felt good. Like I felt good voting on election day, but it was kind of a Pontius Pilate move where I was just washing my hands and saying, "Look, not me, not my problem." But you, but you took it a step further and you voted for Hillary, right? I did, yeah. And it was a real crisis of conscience, as far as I'm concerned, because I I really do not like that woman. I don't like what she stands for. I don't like her family. Uh, I don't like um, her character. Uh, I, I don't trust uh, anything to do with them. But 
uh, and I consider Hillary to be wrong on almost all political points, foreign and domestic. However, she is wrong in within the normal parameters. And it's the kind of wrong that we survived eight years of it under Obama. We could survive four more uh, uh, um, under Hillary. Um, I don't think she would do, she might do things that were stupid and wrong, but I don't think she would do anything that was unexpected or disastrous. She's a very cautious, conventional mind. And uh, um, so, yeah, it really was a major crisis of conscience for me because uh, living in New Hampshire, we are a genuine swing state. And much as I would have liked to have voted for for Gary Johnson, um, I, I was in a situation um, where I, by doing so, I essentially would have been voting for Hillary. And uh, I was in a situation where one of those, you know, once in a lifetime things where your your actual individual vote might count. You know? It might be the one vote that gave the one electoral vote, you know, or not one of the, the, the four electoral votes that we have in New Hampshire that, 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 that tipped the scale. So it was a it was a bad moment. And I'm not proud of my behavior, but I don't know what else I could have in good conscience done. I, I found the quote I was thinking of, and you were talking about uh, rereading George Orwell. Uh, and here's the quote, rereading 1984 as an adult, um, Orwell neatly summarized our choice in the current presidential election. Will you vote for pain or for humiliation? In 2020, are you pro-pain or are you pro-humiliation? Well, when you vote for pain, you get the humiliation. <laughs> when you vote for humiliation, you get the pain. I don't know what I'm going to do. I honestly don't. I don't think there's any danger uh, this time. New Hampshire has been changing. It's been changing for years. I, I've lived up here for, geez, 40 years now. And um, I've watched it demographically change, turn into sort of a Massachusetts North or a Vermont East to, to a very large extent. I don't think there's much of any likelihood um, um, that uh, Trump will carry the state uh, in, in this election. Um, so I can safely vote libertarian and, and probably will. Yeah, um, I have the uh, luxury of living in Washington, D.C. for reasons that are purely irrational, but one of the benefits of that is that my vote never matters. And, yeah, yeah, you're off the hook. and I'm able to stand in line and, and feel good about, about voting for Joe Jorgensen this time and, and blame the rest of my fellow Americans for whatever happens. All right. Going back to 2016, it's a shame that, um, that uh, Gary Johnson ran such a was basically low calorie campaign. I think there was a moment where the libertarians could have attracted, um, you know, they, they weren't going to win, but they could have attracted a chunk of votes. Yeah. So, you know, another issue, I, I recently had uh, Senator Rand Paul on my show, and I, I really respect him. Great guy. I, I like him a lot. And I like whenever I end up disagreeing with him, I have to question um whether or not I haven't thought things through. But one of the argu arguments he makes, and Senator Mike Lee makes a similar argument, is that one of, the, one of the good parts of Trump is the fact that he hasn't gotten us into any new wars. And I, I think that's true. And it, it's not something that I would have predicted looking at the same personality traits that you were looking at in, in 2016. 
Um, but then you see a tweet like he, you, I know you're not on Twitter um, because you're, you're a rational being, but uh, a couple of days ago, President Trump tweeted out something to the effect of, um, thank goodness Kim Jong-un is alive and healthy. And I, and I say to myself, why would any American at any time celebrate the health of a mass killer in a brutally socialist, violent country? And I, I just can't square those two things because I like that we're not in new wars, but I feel like, I feel like you could call out bad guys and, and say it like it was. Yeah, well, that is a, that tweet exemplifies the part of Trump's character that scared me away from even you know seriously considering voting for him. Uh, the, in the in the event, um, in, in, you know, touch wood, and so far, uh, his uh, uh, his behavior has not been uh, as as irrational as I feared it might be. I mean, it's it's been sort of micro irrational. It's it's been sort of macro standard issue um, and, and, and micro irrational, which is a huge relief. But I'm not certain that I can I count on another four years without a macro irrationality. <sighs> Do you think so? You have this uh, you talk about the rise of of what I would call right collectivism, but nationalism. And you say classical liberalism, classical liberalism has had a good run. Now it's about time to get run over by a bus full of stupid post-capitalist political trends. The new socialism, the new nationalism, the new trade war mercantilism, and the new social media platforms that drive the bus. Um, being a nationalist is worse than being a drunk. At least if you're a drunk, you're not part of a mass movement. Did, did Trump create nationalism and does it go away with him or was nationalism percolating up as, as sort of this toxic populism that is with us to stay? Uh, he called it and it came. Um, uh, no, it, it long pre-existed him. Uh, nationalism is a hard thing to get away from and there is a fantastic George Orwell essay about the difference between patriotism and, and nationalism. Nationalism is, is, is believing, I mean, patriots believe that where they come from and who they are and their community and so on is the best on earth, but have no particular desire to impose it. I use the example of Ohio. I'm from Ohio. I believe in Ohio. I am an Ohioan in my heart. It's been many years since I've lived there, but nonetheless, I will always be round on the ends and high in the middle. Uh, I will always be a Buckeye. And I will always support Ohio State in their annual game, which I probably won't have this year, um, uh, uh, against Michigan. Um, but, you know, it's not like we want to conquer Michigan uh, and take it over and turn it into Ohio. I mean, that would mean running out of little bitty mushrooms in our salads and, and stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, there's a, a key. It, nationalism is something that's very hard to keep a lid on. And mercantilism, likewise, mercantilism ap appeals to a fundamental human um, visceral uh, uh, a belief that economics um, is zero sum, that there's only so much wealth in the world. And if somebody else is getting a larger slice of that wealth, if they're eating up too much of the, uh, of the wealth pie, I'm going to have to eat the pizza box. And um, uh, 
uh, it's very hard to um, Adam Smith spent a thousand pages trying to convince people otherwise about mercantilism. It was a difficult argument in 1776 when the Wealth of Nations was published. It's a difficult argument now. Uh, it's a difficult argument to keep patriotism from bleeding into a kind of nationalism, to keep your local pride and your personal pride and your pride in your community from turning into an anger at other communities. Uh, likewise, with other um, um, uh, you know aspects of populism, you know if uh, uh, if if some government intervention is needed in the economy um, to make things a little bit more fair and square for for people, then why wouldn't more government intervention be better? Um, there's that side of it too. There's a kind of funny leftism involved in populism. Uh, much more visible in the progressives over the 19th century than, than than it is now, but it's there. Yeah, and it like I, I think nationalism. Um, you find plenty of nationalism in the in the new socialists or the democratic socialists, as they euphemistically call them. And you're you're talking earlier about the uh, Trump voter that you met in New Hampshire, and I always go back to a New York Times piece that was written, I believe, in early 2016, and Trump was holding one of his famous rallies in Burlington, Vermont. And I think the New York Times went there expecting to find every voting person in Burlington being fundamentally horrified by this right-wing nationalist, this literal Nazi coming to their community. And they went down, there was a big line outside for the Trump rally, and they went and talked to one person after another and one person would say, you know, I really like Bernie, but if Bernie doesn't make it, I could go with Trump. And the next guy would say, you know, I really like Trump, but, you know, if Trump doesn't make it, I could really go with Bernie. So there's there's these aspects of mercantilism and nationalism and protectionism um, that that emanate from from what what they're calling the hard left, the socialists and the hard right, the nationalists. But but I, I never really bought that left-right thing, because it strikes me that those are just flavors of the same thing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And that must have deeply, deeply confused the New York Times when they when they saw that that possible swing between what they must consider to be absolutely polar opposites. But in fact, it's that somebody has got to do something about this that need, need as you, you put it earlier, to, to send a bomb to Washington to, to, to mix things up. And of course, uh, Bernie would have, would have served, uh, for, for, for the people who are, are, are absolutely determined that government is, is corrupt. Um, uh, a destruction of government from the left or right is to be, uh, we saw this sort of thing in Weimar, Germany, you know, in the free corps street fighting. Uh, there was often a fair amount of switching of sides between the hard right nationalists and the, and, and the hard left uh, uh, pro-Soviet uh, uh, types. It worries me a great deal. It particularly worries me because I don't regard government as being particularly corrupt. Um, by that, I mean that if you have a large organization with enormous powers and a huge number of people working for it, it is going to produce a certain amount of corruption. Um, given the size and scale and scope of the American government, um, is it worse than, uh, I mean, there is no organization to, to, to compare it against. But let's say 
let's take the Chinese government as an example. Is our government more corrupt than, you know, is, 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 is our government actually unusually corrupt for as powerful and large and or institutionalized organization as it is? Uh, I actually think most of the time they do pretty well and most of the people in government mean to do well, not all of them. I usually get the one at the Department of Motor Vehicles who doesn't, but you know, not always. Sometimes they're very cheerful. You know, the, 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 the corruption in government is one of the favorite themes of uh, Bernie Sanders. He's constantly claiming, uh, complaining about, you know, the collusion between capitalists and, and government. And I feel like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, who's kind of a mini Bernie, um, she's the same way. And they, and they complain about things that I worry about as well. They complain about mass incarceration and they complain about too many wars. Bernie's actually... Um, pretty uh, hand in glove with Rand Paul on, on some issues of foreign policy and they complain about crony capitalism, but then they end the sentence with, and that's why we need to give more power to government, even though power corrupts. And I, I feel like they just told a story about the corruption of power and then they're like, we need to do it better this time. Right, and, and need to do it bigger. And, of course, a lot of the corruption comes simply from scale. I mean, uh, you know, something that big, of course, there's going to be uh, 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 bad actions and bad players. It, it is uh, uh, baffling. And it's also baffling to me, and this is my argument with my liberal friends and leftist friends, if I've got any left, uh, is that um, do not build a huge government for fear of who might get their hands on it. And you would think that Trump for them would be the living lesson in why not to build a huge federal government for fear of who might get control. Yeah, but but they uh, they seem instead to be like, we just gotta get it back. We gotta get the power back and we'll we'll fix it and, and we'll fix it. and we'll get rid of those we'll get the, rid of those guys and and punish all of those Trump voters who who dared to to put him in there. It's 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 there is there doesn't seem to be learning on this, and and I'm think like going back to democratic socialism. Why do you think AOC is so so cool with the kids today? Oh, I think kids are nationally naturally socialists. Uh, we have that 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 dictum from Marx, which I believe he stole from some from some democratic socialists originally, which is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Now we know every grown up knows that the world doesn't work that way, except for there's one little place on earth where the government, where society actually works in a from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's called the family. When you grow up in a family, when you're growing up in a family, you grow up under the conditions of from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And when you first become an adult, when you turn 18, when you're in your early 20s, you think that, especially if you had a good family, you think that the world should be modeled on the, uh, but the world, you know, is not a family. The family of man is, well, it is a family, but it's an extremely quarrelsome one. You, uh, 
you say in your book, and I, and I want to close out with this because I know you got uh, you got other interviews to do. Um, you you start you end with an optimistic note. Maybe I'm betting that human nature will triumph over adversity and challenge, and I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> um, well, I was just thinking about how mad at each other we had gotten, uh, you know, in the, uh, 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 right up until this pandemic broke out and how we've all been like sort of stuck in the house ever since. And will we emerge from this trauma and and from, you know, the, the, the disturbances in the street, many of them based upon real complaints, um, uh, uh, based upon um uh, uh, valid observations of a system that is often not fair um, um, to people who are different from the people who run the system. Um, will we emerge from all this with a more sensible, restrained, uh, cautious idea about government power? Um, <clears throat> after all, defund the police is a libertarian slogan too. We, we, we've been talking for years about the excessive militarization of the police and turning them into a sort of occupying force, you know, rather than public servants. Um, so will people emerge from, from their isolation, um, um, all calmed down and more sensible or in the privacy of their own homes, will they just let their anger and their bitterness build and expand and cook and heat um, and, and come out angrier than ever, because that's often how human nature works. You know? Yeah, tragic. I mean, I, I, I think it's the latter, and I think the, the protests that, that morphed into violence and riots and looting were, were part of that dynamic. At some people, people were just pissed off and looking for a reason to take to the streets. And the tragedy of all that is that the libertarian solutions to uh, police abuse and, and mass incarceration, all these things that, that we've been talking about for so many years, that got pushed aside. And now the, now the two sides are, are just trying to blame the other one for, for what went wrong and what went right. It's, it's really, so your prediction is, is probably um, well thought, but you, you also point out that, that America was founded on anger and perplexity. So, so maybe maybe in the long run we we rise above our anger as we have in the past we 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 will always be perplexed about the future but but there's a there's a happy ending in there somewhere maybe i hope so you know i mean certainly it's it's been an amazing run with america um we are um uh populated by people you know who came here some you know looking for someone to make you know some forced here, some dragged here involuntarily as slaves, some forced here by, 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 by bigotry um, and, and oppression, some kind of dumped here by, 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 by poverty. Uh, we've never gotten along very well. Uh, we probably never will get along very well. But somehow from this mess of, of, of motivations and the seven deadly sins has emerged uh, the freest, richest, most powerful nation ever. How do we do that? I don't know, but I do have a certain trust that we'll keep doing it. Yeah, I agree. Um, and one of the upsides of, of social isolation and technology is that you're able to go on a full-fledged book tour without leaving your book nook there. That has to be a good thing, Sorry. right? Um, so your book is called A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. 
Do you have a preferred bookseller and where would you like viewers of this show to go to buy your book and maybe buy it several times? Well, if they can, I'd like them to go to the Toadstool Bookstore um, here uh, in New Hampshire. It has three branches in Keene, Peterborough, and Nashua, I believe the third branch is. Um, but if that's too far away, they can order it from the Toadstool Bookstore. They've got a phone number. <laughs> so let's, pl- let's plug them. I, they, they have been incredibly supportive over the years, and it's wonderful to have a really, to be way out in the middle of nowhere and have, you know, within a 20-minute drive or so to have one of the best privately owned bookstores in the world. And, and Jeff Bezos doesn't need to own everything. I suppose. He doesn't have to. No, he doesn't. You know, somebody should tell him he doesn't really have to. Yeah, before he does. Well, well, thank you so much. And uh, it was really an honor and a pleasure to, to talk to you about your new book. Well, thank you. This was great. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.